Well, open with me in your copy of the Word of God to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew, chapter 2, will be in the first 12 verses of Matthew's gospel account this morning. Um, For those of you who may be guests with us from in town or from out of town, welcome. Um, Love to meet you. I'll be around after the service with some of our pastors down front. And if we can pray with you today or speak with you about our church or this book or this sermon, we sure would be happy to do that. Pray that you're greatly encouraged in the knowledge of God this morning. Well, have you come to seek Jesus this morning? Maybe seems like a silly question. We've come to church, but have we come this morning to seek Jesus? And what does that even mean anyways? Well, this morning's passage will give us some insight into what it means to seek Jesus. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Merry Christmas. We are in a series of four sermons. Started a couple weeks ago. We'll finish up next week. Working through the origin story of Jesus. We say he's the reason for the season. The Bible doesn't prescribe an annual celebration of the birth of Christ, but we can roll with it. We can be grateful that the influence of this great book, this great story, And the truth about Jesus and his good news has so spilled over into culture that it's uh, an annual habit. And so sometimes we devote a whole series to anticipation, expectation, and passages like this. Well, what is wondrous about this story here? This has been called the, the star of wonder. There's all kinds of features in 
this story which might have our attention, the star in the sky, like what it is and how it worked. Is it a regular star? In that case, how did it guide? Um, is it an angel? Angels often identified with the stars. Is it an angelic, bright, shining creature that, that is guiding them? That, that could be. Is it a straight-up miracle? I say straight-up miracle, you know what I mean. Uh, God's orchestrating these things, but then there are profound interventions in nature, and maybe there is just some phenomenon that, that the Lord planted in the sky, and maybe even just for them to see. Uh, maybe it was some alignment of certain planets, I forget which two or three, that created some, some uh, uh, visual in the sky that then uh, triggered these uh, wise men to seek uh, him out. So you have the stars in the sky. We also have the stars of the show here, uh, these wise men. Like, who are they exactly? Uh, what was the nature of their wisdom? Of course, we have Mary and Joseph, When we have a bunch of animals we're familiar with. Uh, the nativity scene. Think of the nativity scene as um, a signature. So if you sign your name, on paper, is that you? Well, yes and no. You put it there. It stands in for you, but it isn't the whole of you, right? Uh, so the nativity that we may drive by or set up in our, in our yards, of course, is just, um, call it like a Minecraft version of the Jesus origin story. Uh, it's like super low resolution. Uh, it compresses what is probably 18 months or two years into, into one little, little picture. All of it didn't happen in a moment quite like that. They're well-meaning and they're, they're fine for their purpose. We just need to understand that um, God didn't give us those little scenes, but he gave us this story with quite a bit more detail, even if we'd like a little more on the nature of this, this star, which I might give some indication to a little later. So this little story, we, we set our attention on various uh, features and come to it with various questions and and that's just fine. But what, what is Matthew's concern? What is, what is Matthew concerned to set our attention on? Where is he directing us exactly? What is his purpose in writing? Those are always the best questions when we read our Bibles, um, when I'm reading it to study to preach, and when you're reading your Bibles. We don't have to have every answer to every question we might ask, but we need to do a whole lot better than mindlessly reading or only reading for what pops into our heads uh, we want to read carefully to understand what the Holy Spirit is saying through the human authors who have written the story. Matthew has indeed composed this carefully. He's chosen this story, and God in his wisdom and design has put this story in history and inscripturated it for our reflection, and he has reasons for doing so. So we'll explore this passage in the time that we have. Um, we'll follow these wise men on their journey, and then we'll consider our journey today. First, these wise men on their journey, following the wise men. Our story begins with a sincere search, verses 1 through 2. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod, the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king 
of the Jews. For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Well, let's start with these wise men. Who were these wise guys? Well, let's start with what they are not. There's quite a bit of uh, folklore or legend built up around some of these features, and I'm just going to kind of knock some of these off. They're, they're incidental and they're not terribly important, um, but, but I'll clarify for you who they are and who they weren't. Um, how many were there? Does anyone know? Okay, we have no idea. We have no idea. So the song, We Three Kings, okay, we'll get to that in a minute, the king's part. It's not three. It doesn't say anything about three. They have three gifts. Okay, so that's where it comes from. Plus, if you're making a little scene, you got to pick a number. So three, one for each gift. That's where the three comes from. Uh, There were enough of them to make a commotion to get notice in Jerusalem. That's what we know about the number. So they're not three necessarily, not kings necessarily, likely not kings. Um, they represent the, the kingdoms of the world, which we'll see, um, but they're just called magi, translated here, wise men. That's fine. They aren't wise men in the biblical sense of, of wisdom. Uh, we three kings of Orient are. That's that old verse. It's kind of an old way of referring to East Asia. What we know is they're just coming from the east of Jerusalem. And what's important about that is that they're coming from outside Israel, outside Jerusalem. They're coming from the nations. A little bit of who they aren't and, and who, they, who they are. As we said, enough to get notice in Jerusalem. So maybe a little caravan, minimally three, I suppose. Um, They're magi. So let's just be really clear about this. These were stargazers. Uh, The line between astronomy, those studying the stars in pagan worlds, and astrology, uh, the religious version of that, religious extension of that, worship of other gods tied to the stars, the line between astronomy and astrology would be almost not. Um, these are the kind of guys that get mocked by Scripture at, at times. You're not supposed to study the stars for insight into the universe and secret meanings. Uh, think in our day, maybe psychics. Okay. So stargazers, astronomers, astrologists have made their way to Jerusalem, having been studying the stars. And minimally, the Lord appears to have simply used... There's, only, there's biblical background for this, but, but what they were accustomed to looking for to draw them to him, himself. And they're from the east. They represent the nations. Remember who, remember who was tucked into that genealogy two weeks ago as we get from Abraham, who was what? A, a pagan not looking for God. And, and there's Rahab behind the walls at Jericho and, and others who made their way into Jesus' genealogy. Matthew's indicating something about who's going to be in this this kingdom and who is welcome and who is invited and who is called. And even here, I think we have an indication of as much. So who were they and why did they go to Jerusalem? Well, we know they were looking for a king. They, They saw a star. They were studying the sky. And there was some unusual 
indication, some unusual body in the sky that they weren't used to seeing, that they interpreted it as indication of some great event. There are other, there are other indications in our literature outside the Bible of stars associated with key events in history, stars associated with, with royalty. It's not clear from the passage, and I'm not necessarily convinced that the star, the star led them geographically, visually led them to the location of Jerusalem. It doesn't have to mean that. It seems more likely that these stargazers were just students of all of the rumors and theories and oracles and promises out there, and they were aware of some of the promises that were known to Israel and God's people. The promise of a great king to come through Jeremiah, behold, the days are coming when I will raise up for David a righteous branch. In his day, Judah will be saved. He'll reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. One day, Israel will have a righteous and forever king, a great and glorious expectation as we've considered. But they'd be familiar as well, perhaps, with the sign that would attend the coming of that that king and how they had certainly been reading and looking for these kinds of of things, maybe reading more into it than your average Jew would have. But from Numbers chapter 24, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. This, this imagery of a rising star, rising light, a rising scepter, a rising light in the shape of a scepter was something they would have had their attention. The imagery of rising light is repeated throughout the Old Testament. And here we have a star, not just appearing, but a star rising. And familiar with the prophecies and the promises of nearby Israel, they head to Jerusalem to knock on the door and ask if they know anything about a king that was born here, we saw the spectacular announcement. A little bit on this beginning of the story with a sincere search. It may even be that there was a, a dramatic visual display in the heavens. Um, John, the, the writer of the Apocalypse, the book of Revelation, and in, in his vision envisions a great sign appearing in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars, and she was pregnant and crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And there's even a way of understanding the way that the, the lights in the sky could have worked. You have a dragon, and you have a woman, and if a comet were to have appeared in a certain place and even grow with time, there'd be the appearance of a growing pregnancy. It's a bit speculative, but it's kind of interesting to think that John's vision may have matched a, a known spectacle in the sky, an interaction of constellations with the appearance of 
what is likely, what is likely a comet. They say these days we know all kinds of things about comets. If it was an intrinsically bright, very large, narrowly inclined, uh, long period, can't read the other word there, kind of comet, then it could have, it could have followed exactly this description here. Um, scholars have often uh, been more inclined toward matters of astrology and astronomy, excuse me, and, and science, uh, trying to figure all this out or dismiss it. And more recently, some work has been done by one studied in both astronomy and biblical exegesis who has let Matthew have his way and his description and has assumed that Matthew was not being overly fanciful or poetic, that the star was actually functioning in a certain way as a guide, at least from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. And there is a way to explain it. I think it's fine just to chalk it up to a miracle, though. A virgin birth is a miracle good enough, and so we don't need an answer to how all this happened. We have a sincere search by these magi, these stargazers who saw something in the sky that had their attention and they are out to figure it out. Surely Jerusalem must rejoice with the news that a child has been born, a king of the Jews, a son of David, yes? No. These are the days of Herod. And so our story moves from a sincere search to a dangerous route in verses 3 through 8. We're told that Herod was troubled. Verse 3, when he heard this, so he's getting it by way of rumor. They don't go to Herod, the king. They're showing up in Jerusalem asking around. Word gets to Herod, the king, and as he hears it, he's troubled and all Jerusalem with him, it says. Why is he troubled? Well, obviously, we have in our story two kings. We have one born king, not born to be king. Um, the stargazers show up and say, hey, where's the king, the, born ki- the, the one born king, um, Jesus? Uh, but we have one who is called king, king of the Jews, Herod. And of course, Herod was not Jewish. He wasn't of Abrahamic descent. He wasn't a part of the people of God. He, he obtained his, his role as king by force, coercion. He did not have a legitimate heir to his own throne. So why is he troubled? Well, he's king. He doesn't like the idea of competition with himself for king of himself and his domain. Understandable as a sinner, yes? Draw your own applications. He's also paranoid. So he's way down the line on this. He's been pursuing his own kingdom for some time. He'd killed one of his wives. He'd take more than one. He killed three of his sons. He was violent and ruthless in the pursuit of his own kingdom. He was also a, a plotter. He plotted for his own rule and the exclusivity of his rule, even the pervasive presence of his rule. He had fortresses built in various places, even palaces built and others. So you never knew where Herod was, which means he was kind of everywhere at once. Everyone assumed he could be in town today. And Herod liked it like that. He'd worked it out 
so that he was king of his kingdom. And this knock on the door and this rumor around town about one born king was not good news to him. And that's why. Herod was king of the Jews, paranoid and invested in his own rule. Well, what did he do about this? Well, we see verse 4. He assembled the chief priests and the scribes of the people. He acquired of, inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So he brings together the chief priests and the scribes. The scribes were the conservative uh, that is, they were really committed to the word of God. They, they copied the word of God. They guarded the word of God. Um, they sought to keep it. Um, the Pharisees, excuse me, the chief priests were at the, the, upper, the upper levels of this religious structure of leadership, fa- scribes being a kind of Pharisee and the chief priests being at the top. But the chief priests were a class unto themselves. They, they were in cahoots with Rome. They liked being on the good side of Rome. They liked being on Herod's good side. Chief priests and the scribes ought to get along, but they do not get along. These are opposing groups, each seeing the other as the problem. So why does Herod call them both together? Well, he wants to know where the scriptures say the Messiah will be born, the son of David will be born. And he needs to have confidence in the answer because a lot's at stake. So he brings the two opposing parties together and figures, well, if they can agree on it, I can trust it. Make sense? If ever you're in that situation, that's a good idea. Got to give him credit. Herod knew how to get what he was trying to get done, done. And Herod got his answer. They told him, we all agree, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. Now remember, we have patterns, predictive patterns in the Old Testament that build and build and build so that we can say Jesus fulfills the scriptures. And then we have direct predictions where a place is mentioned as the birthplace of the Messiah. This is a direct prediction. They told him, Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler there it is, who will shepherd my people, Israel. He assembles the chief priests and the scribes to ascertain and discern the place of the Messiah's birth. What does he do next? Then he summons the wise men. All right, now go get those guys. He certainly couldn't meet them and have no idea, being king of the Jews and all. Uh, Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. So he's figured out the place. The scriptures promise the Messiah will be birth, birth born, and now he wants to know when this star, this light in the sky, first appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you've found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. He's a great liar and a deceiver, of course. He assembled his own and found the place, and he summoned these wise men to find out the time. And with the information enough now, he commissioned a search. Now, asking when, when he was born, may have been just a smart move on his part to get ahead of things in case they did not return. More on that 
next week. But it does give us some indication as to how old Jesus would have been. He's called a child in this passage, no longer a baby. It would have taken time for these magi to travel and to get from here into there as it is. A dangerous route. And the magi didn't even know they were in bad hands. But of course, they head to Bethlehem. This star, or if it was a comet, reappearing as it makes its way around the sun again, opposite the rotation of the earth, appearing to point even right to a location against the horizon. They head there, and Bethlehem's here, and the house is there. Verse 9, Behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, what was their response? Language can hardly capture it. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. And then opening their treasures, they offered to him gifts, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. What a very great find they have discovered. A very great treasure. Matthew is portraying it just this way so that we will know all that we have found in finding the Lord Jesus. Here they hardly understand all that it means, but they know they have found something precious, someone precious. I suppose you think of storm chasers getting that awesome shot in front of a tornado, spending their life finding just the great angle. Here we have stargazers having landed a very great find. And they really believe they're dealing with a king here. That he's not in Jerusalem is no difference to them, although they unlikely understand the full import of his being born in Bethlehem. But they know to pay homage to him. This worship here is likely just a matter of deep respect and homage. And and of course, we know, as Matthew has written it, that we owe him that. And of a certain nature, worship the Lord Jesus, the one true God come become man. They rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. Watch all the verbs. They saw the star. They rejoiced. And then going down into the house, they saw the child and they fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they offered to him. It's a a scene that is serene and incredible and filled with with reverent and joyful and sacrificial action. A profound response on the part of these nameless foreign dignitaries. And isn't it appropriate that the king of the universe in coming to Bethlehem, little Bethlehem, would be visited by foreign dignitaries representing those from throughout the whole of the earth. An appropriate welcome for heaven's king. 
Jesus does elicit a response from us when we see him for who he is. In this passage, we have plenty of negative response, and he does elicit a response when that response is negative. He is a polarizing figure. It goes all the way back to his childhood. But this positive response is our guide. What to pray for, to see Jesus so clearly, to know who he is, to sense his nearness. They sure did that physically. To understand all that he means, all that his rule entails. They had only a sense of this such that we might respond with exceedingly great joy. Have you ever felt that in your heart? We will know it. This is in a way a foretaste of what we will know. In the very height of your affections for Jesus, when you're you're seeing spiritually more clearly than ever, often this is in the context of confessing our sins and coming into the knowledge of his grace and love in a more personal way in the course of life or in sharing the gospel and seeing one believe or in, in being courageous by faith in Jesus grows our faith. And there's all manner of ways in which our delight in him is strengthened, our knowledge of him and our vision of him is made more, more clear. The preaching of the word, we can pray that we would come to see Jesus for who he is and rejoice in him with exceedingly great joy. A kind of joy deep down in our hearts that we can't express with, with words. I pray you've known that. I pray you know that. I pray for help to know that. But this is where it's all going. What's heaven going to be like? Well, it's kind of hard to describe, but we will rejoice with exceedingly great joy over and in and with our Lord. They were filled with joy. They fell down and worshipped. Oh, reverent, awe, regard, respect, homage is not in competition with joy. The joy that we have in Jesus when it is truly in Jesus is not light or trite or cheap or fleeting, but it is deep and grounded in real and enduring. The kind of joy that has you on your face. This again is what to pray for, what to look forward to, and what to seek ourselves every day. Deep reverence for our Lord in our hearts, and at the same time, great joy in our hearts, in our Lord. They fell down and worshiped him. He filled them with joy and they fell down on their faces. And then they opened their treasures and offered to him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Gold, it's often said, stands in for royalty. Frankincense uh, offered as an incense in worship. Myrrh associated with embalming. My own take here is that um, we need not make too much of the particular gifts. I'll explain that in a minute. And I'll pay you back for taking that away from you. Um, it's a, an, an instance in which we may have overread into particular features, but I think that 
Matthew at least is holding something else out in these gifts that, while not greater, is different, even if similar. Now, Jesus is born to go to the cross, and he will be buried for sure, and he is royalty, yes, and he's to be worshipped, and there are no doubt overtones with each of those. But I think there's something else happening here. Something that reveals to us Matthew's purpose in putting the story here. Let me read for you a few passages from the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter 60, we have what is not a reenactment because it happened beforehand, but I made up a word at least that Microsoft Word thinks I made up, a pre-enactment. Is that a thing? So maybe practice a pre-enactment. Just listen. Listen to God's promise through his servant and prophet Isaiah and Isaiah chapter 60. Remember that language of light arising from numbers with the promise of a star, the king? Arise and shine for your light has come, Isaiah says, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the peoples, but the Lord will arise upon you and his glory will be seen upon you and nations shall come to your light and the kings to the brightness of your rising. See, it is almost as we've talked about baptism in the Lord's Supper that the sign of the star may well have corresponded as a visual to the nature of what it was pointing to. And of course, it's always that way. The star is not just an efficient uh, GPS indicator, but is itself bright against the backdrop of the darkest night. And was it not dark in Jerusalem in these days? Dark in Israel in these days? Dark in Bethlehem these days? So they see the star and they come. Lift up your eyes for all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you, your sons and daughters from afar, and your daughters shall be carried on the hip Then you shall see and be radiant and your heart shall thrill and exult. Is that not a picture of what's happening here? Is that not what he does in saving us when we see Jesus? Because of the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nations shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba, note that, shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news and praises to the Lord. So yes, they have brought gifts fit for a king, but they didn't just make them up. Oh, they brought them because instinctively they knew that these were what was owed to this king, this baby, but they didn't know they were actually in the story. Isaiah had prophesied as much. And as they come in in. In, in a moment, in a visit, they picture what God does and is doing among us now and is doing inside us now as his light arises upon us and as we come to his light and as our faces radiate and our hearts thrill and exult, this is what he offers to us. And the wealth of the nations whom he owns, this babe, come to him in the form of these gifts. Remember that little note there that all those from Sheba shall come there's a story in 1 Kings in the days of, of Solomon. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon concerning the name of the Lord, 
She came to test him with hard questions. It's confident. She came to Jerusalem with a very great troop, with camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones were we're told she comes with gifts. And when she came to Solomon, she told all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. And there was nothing hidden from the king that could not be explained to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he built, the food of his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, their clothing, his cupbearers, and his burnt offerings, that he offered at the house of the Lord. There was no more breath in her. Her breath was taken away. At the splendor and the beauty and the majesty and the wisdom of Solomon's rule. And she said to the king, the report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and your wisdom, but I did not believe the reports until I came to my own eyes and seen it. And behold, the half was not told to me, Your wisdom and prosperity surpass the report that I heard. Happy are your men. Happy are your servants who continually stand before you and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever and has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. And then she gave the king talents of gold, There it is, and very great quantity of spices, there they are, and precious stones. Never again came such an abundance of spices as these at the Queen of Sheba made to the King of Solomon. And that must have been in Solomon's own mind when he penned the words of Psalm 72 concerning his future son, the greater son of David to come. And he looked forward to the respect and the esteem the homage and the gifts that that greater son would receive through the prism of his experience from the visit, the surprise visit, no doubt, of the queen of Sheba from other lands. When Solomon wrote, may the kings of Tarshish and all the coastlands render to him that greater one to come, tribute, tribute. And may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts. May all kings... Fall down before him, Solomon wrote, and all nations serve him. Long may he live and may gold of Sheba be given to him and may prayer be made for him continually and blessings invoked for him all the day. So how can we not hear of that first visit to Solomon or Solomon's vision of the future son of David who would be regarded and worshiped by the nations? When we read of wise men, magi, coming from the east to Jerusalem and finding their way to David's city, Bethlehem, rejoicing exceedingly with great joy and falling down and worshiping him and opening up their treasures from foreign lands and offering to him many gifts. So gold, frankincense, and myrrh certainly have royal overtones, and that last one may even point to his suffering. But the accent is on the sheer breadth of the acknowledgement of his rightful worship and rule, and the joy of the nations 
and her reverence in his rule and worship. And so how is it not a fulfillment of this very passage and at the expectations it creates for all the nations that we gather here on the other side of the world this Lord's Day so many thousands of years later to worship this same one. The Magi bowed down and rejoiced and they didn't know the half of it. Just as the Queen of Sheba didn't know the half of it until she showed up. And even when she showed up, she didn't know the half of it. Solomon saw it coming and he spoke of and prayed toward that day. And Matthew knew exactly who the Lord Jesus was in his birth and his death and in his resurrection, seated at the time of this writing at the right hand of the Father. And he writes to clarify for Christians who the Lord Jesus was and to greatly encourage them with his person. They offered him gifts. And so we offer him joyfully and with reverence because he deserves it and because he is a very great king. We offer him our very lives. Joyful beyond expression, he is valuable beyond compare. We've considered the journey these wise men were on and we've followed them to this point. There's one more little step in verse 12. Being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. And so we've moved from a sincere search to a dangerous route and through it to a very great and valuable find of a very great treasure and now to a very close call. Herod has not left our mind. He's expecting for them to return. They offer him gifts and we may wonder, what will Herod do when they return? And right at the 11th hour, the very last verse, the 12th verse, we're told they were approached in a dream by an angel and told, don't return to Herod. And they trust that word. They're used to dealing with dreams and they head back to their own country another way. These magi knew the king was in Israel's story. They did not know that they were in Israel's story themselves. Matthew does. And Matthew would have us to know that we're in his story as well. We're in this story. For at the very end of his book, what does Matthew give us but what we know as the Great Commission, where Jesus tells his disciples to go to the ends of the earth, making disciples and baptizing them with the authority and the presence of Jesus, to make disciples among all the nations. So we move now from our journey with the Magi, following the Magi, now to finding Jesus ourselves. In Matthew's story here, we get more than the story of the Magi and their experience, but we really get a a template for a variety of responses to Jesus. And I would just point you to a few characters on the page here and ask you how you have received Jesus, how you have responded to Jesus, which is the big question. How have you, how have we responded to Jesus? Like Herod, it's possible to go to church and, and to seek your own kingdom such that when really pressed, you would destroy the Lord Jesus. 
When Herod was king, he was greatly troubled. And he was greatly troubled because he prioritized his kingdom. He was one marked by murderous paranoia, as we will see. And he sent that caravan to go find Jesus, but he wasn't interested in finding Jesus for Jesus' sake, but finding Jesus in order to destroy him. He was troubled because Jesus was a threat to his own kingdom. The kingdom that we seek first will decide how we respond to Jesus when we find him. If we're seeking first his kingdom and his name and his glory, then when we find him, we will find all that we need and be happy to empty our sacks of our gifts to him, to have found a treasure hidden in a field and sell all for his sake. Well, it's God's work in us, of course. We find in ourselves profound joy for this great and gracious Lord. May he give us that joy. Are you like Herod, though? Murderous paranoia, I pray not. Or how about like Jerusalem? Maybe you missed them. When Herod was king, he heard this. He was troubled. And then it says, and all Jerusalem with them, with him. Well, all of Jerusalem didn't have Herod's thing. I mean, all of Jerusalem wasn't king. But they were startled and troubled because their king was troubled. They were going with the flow. They were mindlessly parroting Herod's own response. They were trusting in their human king. Is he anxious? Is he troubled? Well, there must be something wrong. Whoever Jesus is, they didn't care to go find him or find out who he was, but it sure seemed like he must be some trouble. So moving on. They did not seek him in their day, and Jerusalem would not seek him in the days ahead. Seek him now. Not where he may be found. He isn't in Bethlehem. But do seek him while he may be found before he returns. Not like Jerusalem, which was so easily troubled by Jesus without searching out for themselves who he really was. Or how about these chief priests and scribes of the people? They're interesting. And maybe we're always in danger of being this kind. They knew their Bibles really, really well. They knew it so well, they had, they had agreement on an answer to Herod about where the Messiah would be born. This quote here is actually a mashup of two verses. They don't just know their Bible quotes, but they, under, they interpret it correctly. It's um, Micah 5.2 in Bethlehem, the land of Judah. That's where the king will be born. But then the second part here is from 1st, 2nd Samuel, excuse me. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And quoting them and putting them together like that isn't some error in the Bible. It's to show that one verse interprets the other. Micah the prophet was preaching on the basis of what Samuel had written. They know their Bibles and they put it together. They've done a good Bible study. There you see. And they know exactly where the Messiah is to come from. They've even swapped out a, a little phrase here, and you Bethlehem Ephrathah. Instead, they, they've quoted it this way, in the land of Judah. And by doing that, they're simply emphasizing the royal, regal, kingly nature of the king that will come from David's line. They, in other words, they know what to expect. They even know where to expect it in the kind of king, to some extent, the kind of king they are to expect. But what do they do with that? 
They do nothing with that. <laughs> you notice this? Like, come on, guys. Bethlehem, it's five miles away. It doesn't say a handful of them you know, got together to go check it out. Maybe the Messiah's here. No, not interested. The cares of this world and the desires for other things choke out the word. And their allegiance was to this world and they were in love with this, this world. Don't think yourself a Pharisee and guilty of this. If you struggle with sin and, and apathy and don't have the joy I've described here, that's not what we're after. But just understand, as a matter of simple fact, it is possible to know a lot of the Bible and to know how the Bible works and to not truly and savingly believe. Even the demons believe and shudder. So let us seek the Lord Jesus as the Magi sought the Lord Jesus, where he may be found while he may be found. I think Matthew puts all this down here for us so that we might know not just how to respond, but how great Jesus is in order that we might respond. And there's a lot of his gospel left so that we might know how great he is. For we're going to follow this baby through his righteous life and his merciful life, his compassionate life, his righteous life, his obedient life for us, even to the death on a cross. For you see, before we should consider how to respond to this king. We must consider what this king has come to do for us. You see, these kings from far away don't know all of what they're into here. They don't even know they're on the pages of the story, but they open up their gifts and they offer to him what they have. And they set a model for us. But before we offer Jesus anything, before it's even possible to have this kind of joy in our hearts, Jesus himself has offered himself for us. For he came as an offering. These magi have sought this king in Jerusalem and then in Bethlehem where they were directed by, of all people, Herod. And they have found what they were looking for. But don't miss that while they have found what they're looking for, don't miss that the Lord himself has led them to this king, right? The promises in the Old Testament, creating expectation for a day like this. The star in the sky, whatever that was. Even used the chief priests and scribes and Herod who would conspire against the Lord to direct their path right to him. And then right at the end of the passage, in order to preserve that son for your sake and for mine so that we might find him? The Lord intervenes with a dream to tell these magi who likely have no idea who's addressing them that they must go another way. Oh, the means God uses. Oh, the means he has used to get to us. The Lord Jesus came all the way to us Oh, we can't take credit for finding him. We can just marvel that the Lord has brought him all the way to us and that the Lord then brings us so that we might find him, so that we might see him for who he is and rejoice over him in the salvation that he brings and bow down and worship him, give him the offering of our whole life, knowing that he has offered himself up 
for our sins. No, his kingdom is joyful. His kingdom is exceedingly valuable. His kingdom is indestructible. And there will be greater tests, even a page away, even before this series is over, one more sermon next week, where you will see just how indestructible God's purposes are. For while the kings of this earth and the rulers of this world over nations and over households and over your own life, king of your own life, may plot against and rage against this king and even against his people. Here's a very encouraging word for us, church. God's purposes through his anointed and through his people are indestructible. What God has began in the sending of his son as a babe, he will finish in the sending of his son to the cross and in his resurrection from the dead. And what he has started in you, he will finish in your resurrection just the same. What is wondrous about this story? Is it the star? Well, maybe I undermined the thought that it would be the star at the beginning. But actually, yes, the star is wondrous. The star is an appropriate sign, bright against the backdrop of the darkest night. The Lord Jesus himself coming into the world, a bright star against the backdrop of the darkness of this world which you and I know in our own hearts and in our own lives, there's plenty of darkness. But there is very great hope as sure as a star is bright against the darkness behind it, the Lord Jesus saves sinners from darkness and transfers them into his marvelous light. And he finishes what he begins. No one, nothing can destroy his purposes for his name, and for his people. Let us trust in him. Let us rejoice in him with great joy and with reverent worship. Let us offer him our whole lives. Let's pray. Well, Father, we give you thanks for this word from Matthew's pen, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And for what insights we gained into your incredible, multi-layered, magnificent story of salvation. And we thank you for every story that you give to us and for this story. And we confess that we relate with Herod and we relate with Jerusalem and we relate with these scribes and Pharisees. Apart from your grace, we would not turn to rejoice in Jesus. We would not see the star that is Christ against the darkest darkness of night, but would walk in darkness and be okay with it. But your son, a star, has risen in our hearts, even as that star rose over Bethlehem, so that our faces shine, so that we thrill and exult. Would you help us to be a church that rejoices in the light of Jesus, whose light is on our faces, for it is in our heart where it has written. And may you give us the courage, and may you give us the compassion, and may you give us the energy to take this word about this babe and this light to the end of the earth. 
For just as the nations came to where Jesus was, so now Jesus has sent us out. And so we go with confidence that you will finish what you began and that your purposes will not be destroyed. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.